0: Hi, welcome to the Wellness Doctors Podcast with Dr. Lorena and Dr. Vanessa. We are both medical doctors who talk about how to optimize health and well-being so that you can be empowered to make better healthy choices, enrich the lives of people around you and join us in the evolution of healthcare. podcast with Graham Bradshaw and Philip Watkins brought to you by Integrated Nutraceuticals Limited Hong Kong. We're grateful to have you with us. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hi there, Philip Watkins, naturopath and director of education here at INL. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the INL podcast. In this month's episode, we are joined by Dr. Lorena Law. Dr. Lorena Law is a medical doctor from both Australia and Hong Kong. A conventional doctor by training, Dr. Law utilizes an integrative medicine approach to managing chronic diseases. Dr. Lorona integrates the best of both evidence-based approaches in functional medicine and traditional Western medicine practices using nutrition, diet, exercise, laboratory testing, supplements, detoxification programs, and stress management techniques personalized to the individual. She believes in promoting health which goes beyond just the absence of disease, optimizing metabolic, hormonal and physiological functions has helped many of her patients improving sleep, energy, fat loss, chronic pain, recovery from injuries, recurrent infections, skin disorders, autoimmune diseases, as well as reduced need for drug therapy. In addition to a busy clinical practice in functional medicine and aesthetic medicine, she is also a part-time lecturer at Hong Kong University Space and a presenter to both doctors and the public on topics related to hormonal health, fat loss, nutritional supplementation, detoxification, stress management, integrative approach to aging skin, and intravenous use of high-dose vitamin C. She is certified by both the Australasian College of Nutritional Medicine and the Australasian Institute for Medical Nutrition on the use of intravenous nutrients. She is a member of the International Peptide Society and is currently completing her certification. She is an Advanced Fellow in Anti-Aging, Metabolic and Functional Medicine and is board certified by the American Association of Anti-Aging Medicine. In this episode, we talk all things skin and cover some interesting ground to do with nutrition, diet, and some more innovative new streams of thinking for the skin in general, as well as some of the more prominent conditions such as acne and eczema. I found this really, really fun to do and learn a lot along the way, and I hope you really enjoy this episode. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the INL podcast. My name is Philip Watkins, and I'm the Director of Education here at INL, and this month we we have a very, very special guest, Dr. Lorena Law. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lorena. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Now, today's uh, episode is gonna be all about skin. More importantly, something I'm really interested in from your point of view is what I'm uh, naming uh, Integrated Dermatology, <laughs> and I've just renamed that, so I would love for you to correct me about this. Mm-hmm. But first of all you've got a very interesting qualification and that's in practical dermatology and maybe if it's all right for those of uh, those of us who have yet to meet you and are new to what you're doing maybe could you introduce what that means and also you know where you've trained and what you're interested in.
0: Thanks Philip for having me on this podcast and hello everyone. So I actually have to Say from the beginning that I'm not a dermatologist. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> not I get your fault. I'm too excited but... with my, my name. <laughs> but it also uh, can be a little bit misleading because um, I did do training in practical dermatology, mm-hmm. but that's very different to being a specialist in dermatology. Mm-hmm. So that's not what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did was when I first ventured into um, skin health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually came from more of a aesthetic perspective. Mm-hmm. So I'm a GP by training and I actually became interested in aesthetic medicine because at the time, and this is going back more than 10 years, in Hong Kong a lot of beauty centers were doing skin treatments. And doctors were also becoming much more interested in injecting Botox and fillers for anti-aging and for um, cosmetic purposes. So I'm always very cautious about these new therapies. They're not new now, it's very commonplace, but because it comes from a different angle of enhancing features rather than treating disease, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't treating people who have a skin condition that could be worsened by cosmetic treatments. So I decided that I needed to learn more in depth about skin conditions and skin diseases to equip myself when I'm actually consulting with a patient to tell them about certain risks and problems that they can have. So practical dermatology is actually a course that is done here through the Hong Kong Medical Association Mm -hmm. and it's recognized by the Medical Council in Hong Kong. And it allows um, GPs or other medical professionals like myself, who are not dermatologists, but want to learn more about dermatology and skin diseases. Because in general practice, we see a lot of cases like eczema, acne, psoriasis, uh, those types of conditions. And I think it's important that as GPs, we know when we need to refer those cases on, if they're not easy to manage and if there are complications. So that's the reason why I went into it, because as a GP I was interested in skin health, but secondly also because doing cosmetic procedures I need to be aware of people's skin conditions so as not to make them worse. So that's the reason why I did it. <laughs> so I I wanted to just make sure that people understand I'm not, uh, I mean dermatology, we really have to like, it's an extra four years of full-time training Whereas practical dermatology, it's a year of um, studying.
1: Still, I, I think it's really interesting that, to pick up on a point for you that in Hong Kong, uh, the, the types of skin conditions that I've seen just through m- my own clinic have been quite aggressive. And I wonder if you have a comment on that in the, the idea of actually knowing more about it and being mm-hmm. able to identify when to refer and when to actually you know, enlist the help of someone who's had that for years is actually mm-hmm. a lot more uh, serious in a, in a way to describe it here mm-hmm. as there's a lot more of uh, in infectious uh, eczema and things like yes. that. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you have a comment on how you've seen, I guess, specifically skin within Hong Kong and skin diseases as opposed to where, you know, some of the other places where, you know, you might see it?
0: Yeah, so the difference really here as opposed to Australia where I did my undergrad training is that we don't tend to see as many skin cancers in the local population because of the skin type and also because of the difference in latitude Mm. we're less um, I guess locally Asian people don't like to be exposed to sun (laughs) so I don't tend to sunbake as much but in Australia because we are much more exposed to sun and because of the type of skin um, more type 1 to type to um, skin levels, uh, there's easier burning, so there's much more effect from the sun's UV radiation. So I see, tend to see a lot more skin cancers and melanomas in, in those populations. Mm-hmm. However, there are expats who live in Hong Kong, and it's a very um, international city. So if I do have patients who perhaps may have a malignant or a um, cancerous looking like a mole or a, a skin rash then I would refer to my colleagues sure. who are dermatologists and ask them to check it out and monitor them uh, and sometimes even if they need a biopsy uh, perhaps to confirm uh, that it is a cancer or not then I would refer on mm. so I don't treat those types of cancers myself mm-hmm. um, and also if I feel that the patient's um, eczema or um, acne is getting very severe to the point where they're probably going to get very serious side effects and sometimes they're going to be scarring, for example, Um, then I think it's important that they get referred to somebody who can closely monitor them Mm. and give them the best treatment as fast as they can to heal and get the condition under control. Sure. So I tend to see cases that are a bit more chronic, mild to moderate, where Perhaps they've already gone through the whole spectrum of conventional skin therapies, and they haven't really uh, responded well, mm-hmm. or they've responded partially but not completely. Mm-hmm. And those patients are interested in looking at what nutrients or what other areas in their lifestyle um, may be impacting their skin health. So that's why um, for for me, there the my my own interest is in the area mm-hmm. because. Um, A lot of those uh, scars that appear as a result of chronic skin conditions can benefit from topical therapies. So I'm talking about um, creams or chemical peels or lasers or any type of energy-based devices. But it's very important that the skin condition is stable and whatever treatment that we're doing to improve the scar or the appearance of the scar isn't going to make the skin condition worse. Indeed or add extra complications. So that's the area that I'm interested in. But also, at the same time, I realize that um, a lot of skin conditions uh, have, a, have a lot of dietary and lifestyle issues do impact on skin. And the reason is because I, I started to see a lot of adult acne Uh, appear here here. and it's interesting because often the women come to see me and they're (laughs) complaining that they're not teenagers anymore and yet they're still suffering from acne. Now sometimes they have already a history of acne as a teenager and they've been on medication such as Roaccutane Mm. and sometimes antibiotics Um, but often they actually present first time in adult life uh, with acne. So uh, one of the things that I would look into are things like polycystic ovary syndrome because that's actually not uncommon. And it's actually becoming more and more common and we're diagnosing it more and more. Back in 20 years ago when I was a medical student, we weren't really hearing a lot of it. And so we're seeing a lot more women suffering from that. And I think it's important that that's excluded because often these women go to um, other non-medical places and try to have different types of treatment and yet the underlying condition or the problem is a hormonal issue Mm. and so they don't really get good control of it Mm. so that's why um, even though I see skin I don't look at just the skin but beyond and that's the reason why today I wanted to talk a bit about um, people coming to see me because they have scars they want to improve their appearance but actually I also talk to them a lot about um, internal health and internal anti-aging, and what, is, what does that mean and how does that impact on their skin?
1: You mentioned that, and I find that really interesting, I think one of the, bringing up acne, vulgaris mm-hmm. is one of the more interesting things uh, to look at, I guess, first of all, when we're talking about skin conditions, mainly because it's actually... I think we're seeing an increase in prevalence in adult female Mm -hmm. acne Mm -hmm. as well, is that correct? Yes. And I think the interesting part about the metabolic side of acne and PCOS as well is that there's a huge kind of insulin and metabolic component Mm -hmm. to that as well. So it really seems like nutrition is, in some way, when you break that down, the first point of... Of call and when you sit down with someone I mean, what, what are the first things that you tend to think about when you're you know maybe assessing someone mm-hmm. for the first
0: time? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I do is I like questionnaires yep. because I like to <laughs> ask people about everything and often it's interesting because I sometimes get feedback that the questionnaires are too long um, and but then other times I get feedback that actually people didn't realise they had to think about mm. things like sleep mm. or or uh, their gut health, or what they've had done in the past. Have they taken antibiotics? How's their immune system generally? Mm -hmm. What kind of food do they eat? And as they're filling in the form, they actually become more aware that there are certain lifestyle issues that they may be able to improve that could then improve their skin symptoms. So I often start with that. And I go back even to when they were in their teenage years and their like childhood years, because I wanna know were they breastfed? Uh, Did they have a lot of antibiotics? Did they have a lot of skin conditions or skin allergies? Because I think We know now that um, for eczema for example, um, if we are able to improve the mother's immune system with probiotics that can actually lessen Mm -hmm. the chances of children getting childhood eczema. Mm -hmm. So I think going back even to to that level uh, gives me an idea as to how good was this person's gut health and how diverse is their gut microbiome because we're, we're now more aware of, what, of, the, of the fact that gut health actually has a connection to skin health. And in fact, it was probably around about 80 years ago that there were two dermatologists called Stokes and I forget his other name, Pillsbury. So they actually coined the term the gut-skin axis. So, so they actually um, hypothesized at the time that people's emotions impacted on their gut flora, which then affected their skin health. So that was amazing for like two doctors who didn't know anything about gut health as we do now. And so <laughs> to, early too to, yeah, to right, hypothesise. Well. Yeah, so so I, I like history because I like to look at what other doctors generations ago thought and That's pretty much where I feel that the research is now going is confirming a lot of these things and we're understanding more about the pathways and the mechanisms. And so um, when we go back to acne, I I look at all that history because we know that things like stress and low stomach acid, um, certain toxins in the food that we eat and chemicals in the environment can impact on the diversity of our gut microbiome and that can impact on how well that gut barrier and immune system functions, which then connects to the pathways. Mm -hmm. So one of the pathways that is very interesting um, and it's not often talked about has to do with um, neuroinflammation. So there is a neurotransmitter called substance P, and this particular neurotransmitter is not often talked about but it links neuroinflammation in the gut to the skin. So when this in neurotransmitter is triggered, you actually get more inflammation in the oil glands and it also causes the skin microbiome to become more inflamed. Yeah. So I think like we're understanding more of how these uh, relationships are working and again, there's so much more research, even just talking about um, gut permeability mm. and how food and the types of food that we're eating, even though they could be healthy, can trigger an um, overactivation of the immune system because the more our gut becomes permeable, the less it is able to balance the immune system. So in the past, when we read about acne, don't eat sugar or chocolates or, or cheese or certain types of foods. Um, and it wasn't really, we weren't really able to pinpoint or identify a, a particular group of foods because everyone's immune system is different because everyone's diet is different. So that's why I think there's always been a bit of confusion about you know should you exclude foods or eliminate certain foods if you have skin conditions. Um, and I think it depends on the different types of skin conditions. And, the, and currently, we do have some observational studies that, uh, for example, with acne, it's foods that are high in sugar. Um, and for eczema, for example, it could be dairy. Um, and sometimes for psoriasis, we've actually seen an association with gluten um, and with rosacea, uh, not so much, well, spicy food with rosacea. Uh, so we're really starting to see like, some commonalities in the different disease groups, but there's also a lot of variability amongst different patients. So, so I often go through a patient's diet. <laughs> I ask them, what, what do they eat um, often? And do they have other symptoms apart from skin symptoms? Do they have bloating in their gut? Do they get joint pain? Do they get chronic fatigue? Do they have sleep issues? Um, do they have reflux Um, so i asked them about these questions and um, then i kind of then i put together um, what could be a triggering issue for them and work out how severe is their skin condition how frequent they're experiencing it what other treatments have they had from other doctors and work out a way of changing their diet um, getting them to focus on some some areas like sleep for example. Um, but often I find that um, some patients are, especially here in Hong Kong, people are so busy and they have so many <laughs> things to do even <laughs> in the early hours of the evening that some people are just getting four or five hours sleep.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think one of the it, what I'm hearing from that is that we're starting to really get diet as a prescription as opposed to your diet for human optimization, let's say. Mm. And I think this is a really you you brought up a really interesting point in the sense that I think where I'm seeing and I'd love to hear your opinion on it is that we're now actually getting to a point where a diet prescriptively may be, you know, a twelve week kind Mm. of, you know, at least a twelve week beginning where you need the diet prescriptively to underpin any of the other types of interventions do you I mean, how do you see that play out when you say change someone's diet what, what kind of things do you see a particular mm. time frame that you rely on or you advise your patients hey this isn't you know magic you're not going to not eat bread for three days and all of a sudden everything's going to be mm. okay how do you tend to manage people's expectations in relation to how much diet can do and maybe you know, any other things you, you offer people in, in that regard
0: so it depends on where they've started from because sometimes people are they they're used to the modern type of diet where in Hong Kong you go to a cafe you order instant noodles and spam ham for breakfast and then in the afternoon you order your uh you know the afternoons are not too bad but they tend to have a lot of sauces and and additives and then at night time maybe that's their healthiest meal where they're sure. cooking vegetables and rice and, and, and some lean meat at home. But the first thing I try to do is see, see where they're at in terms of what they understand, um, about their diet. And if they are drinking a lot of soft drinks, for example, which is really common as well, um, then I sort of, start to tell then I would educate them about maybe cutting that out for a period of time and instead of having soft drink let's increase their water intake maybe if they don't like the taste of water put some lemon into it so really be very specific about why I want them to cut out soft drinks uh, because it's so processed it, even though it' these days we have um, sugar substitutes, there is still some evidence that it could change the gut microbiome and if there's somebody who's been taking antibiotics for their coughs and colds and or their ear infections when they're young then they probably have um, quite limited gut diversity mm. and so their gut health may not be so good. So I want to minimise and I think if I can minimise some of these things and also at the same time focus on things like water because often people forget to drink water they get so busy in their day to day that they don't, and sometimes they don't drink water because they don't want to take a toilet break it's pretty crazy isn't <laughs> it's it? it's actually really incredible mm. yeah. so i i did have a patient like that who was in her 30s and I said, well, what's happening to your gut health? And, and then we talked about, you know, how constipated she was and how uh, her bowel movements. Wow. Okay. And, and I said, well, actually, are you eating fiber? Well, and then she had all these issues with her diet as well. And she had no time to eat. She was a lawyer. <laughs> and, so, and she was coming and she was seeing doctors and taking antibiotics for her acne. And I said one day, well, how much water are you drinking? He said, oh, I'm not really drinking water because I don't want to go to the toilet because I have no time to go to the toilet. So I said, you know, if you just drank this amount, eight glasses of water, we agreed on. I think she was only drinking like two glasses of water a day. The rest was coffee or that's it. Um, And so I said, why don't we increase your water intake (laughs) to what you optimally need? And she was like... But I didn't need to go to the toilet.
1: <laughs> I've, had exactly the, I've, exact, I've had exactly the same patient. And they were constipated as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and
1: it's yeah, to know where to start in that conversation. <laughs> <is> it? <laughs> it's just, because uh, what we're used to, what we know is
0: optimal, <laughs> or what we see is optimal is so far from what their reality is that I, I really had to sit down and say to her that, okay, there's a few things. You have a lot of toxins in your body you do have to get rid of it ideally if you're eating every day you've got waste products so you want to be going to the toilet every day at least a minimum so i actually had specific goals of their bowel movements yeah, yeah. and their water intake because that's really important healthy function and unfortunately we're not really taught that at school uh, or you know in our adult life we just accept that what and and then we're embarrassed to talk about it like she was really embarrassed about talking about her bowel habits. (laughs) So I said, don't be embarrassed. Um, You know, I hear everything about people's body functions. That's why you're here. I'm a health professional. Yeah, Yeah, we've heard it all before, you know, the kind of internship training that we have. You know, we had to check everything, really. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So don't worry about that. So, um, yeah. and, And so going from where they are, meet the, meeting them where they understand and really just feel making them not feel embarrassed about these things, I think that's really important mm. and then just getting them to try at least for a couple of weeks and I think it depends on their age as well, like if they're younger they tend to respond faster and if they are doing other things at the same time, like some people may be able to say okay, I'll sleep more and I'll drink this much more water or I'll um, be able to, you know, um, maybe cut out this particular uh, processed food, then they might start to see an improvement even as fast as three weeks. Right. So I don't stop there and I don't say, okay, now you can go back. But <laughs> I say, well, that's just the start. It just means that you're on the right track and we're on the right track in terms of your lifestyle changes. So why don't we keep doing that and then maybe consider other foods that are actually healthy that you can incorporate Um, because I know that sometimes we often focus on, oh, let's eliminate foods, Mm -hmm. but we also need to focus on, well, what about eating um, more whole foods? So that's one thing that I talk about uh, often with patients is what's considered a whole food and also what's considered healthy fats because I think we grew up in a society where we demonize fats and then now we've demonizing carbohydrates it's, really <laughs> um, full on, it? <laughs> it's yeah. very full-on and um, we're demonizing macronutrients so i think um we might have gone a bit far there so i don't really talk about those types of things i talk about food quality because in cities um convenience food is so much cheaper it's there all the time it's very difficult to resist so to make an effort to invest in our health, I think we need to understand what is a whole food and what's Mm. considered whole food. Mm. What's a good fat? What can I eat more of? Uh, so I talk a lot about, um, fatty acids and that's very important for things like eczema and, um, our cells Mm. are made of fatty acids. Mm. So every single cell in your body has phospholipids, which are the outer lining of your cells. So I make it really simple (laughs) for patients to understand and, I would say, look, I would recommend that you try some flaxseed, for example, or eat salmon or uh, have a handful of nuts or 10 10 pieces of nuts a day or try pumpkin seeds and try to get them to incorporate foods that actually traditionally um, they eat because in Asia we have a different kind of food um, diversity. So try to encourage them more on eating those types of foods and just getting their digestion and the and the bowel movements uh, going i think makes a huge difference
1: especially if there's a hormonal element to that as well with yeah. you know if people's uh, colon and bowel are a little bit out of whack so to speak um, then obviously with you know enzymes like beta-glucuronidase and some of the estrogen metabolism as well Thank you, Carrie Jones. If you're listening. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> Hi there. Um, uh, you know, these things can be you know really major parts of um, of how someone's skin would mm. present. Um, I w- you mentioned substance P, and substance P has actually been a, a very big interest of mine because oh, I yes. believe of mainly because of pain perception. Mm. And but can you maybe elaborate a little more if you can on what you know what substance P is maybe as far as neurotransmitter, how maybe it might affect people's skin a little bit more uh, for those who are interested, because I find this one a real fascinating one. Out of the neurotransmitters, you know, we've got our favourites and, you know, serotonin and dopamine, Mm -hmm. but this poor old substance P doesn't (laughs) really get the the audience that it needs. But it's also modulated by quite a few nutrients as well. Mm. So, I mean, could you tell us more about how this all might relate?
0: Yes, yeah, so when I actually looked at the gut skin axis, that was one of the, uh, one of the pathways that ties in gut health with skin health because substance P actually appears in both these areas. And so it is actually a mediator of inflammation Mm. in the gut and in the skin. So there are things that trigger it. So for example, in the gut, it's something called lipopolysaccharides. So these are actually particles that are released from the gut microbiome, so gut bacteria. And if it actually crosses the gut barrier, it can actually trigger substance P to be released.
1: Okay, yeah. So we're seeing yeah. that low-grade chronic inflammation starting to appear there.
0: Yeah, so it does increase the trigger of the immune system. So then you're getting a lot of histamine, mast cell release. All those pathways are actually being triggered as a result of it. So we often don't think about uh, neurotransmitters being an inflammatory mediator, We often think about other types of inflammation, but when we actually talk about this, it's a kind of neurogenic inflammation that we're referring to. So even um, things like nerve pain, for example, can be mediated by this. Um, But in the skin, it's actually more to do with inflammation because the actual um, ducts in the skin where you get the hair follicles and we, where you get the sebum secretions, they're actually nerve endings in mm-hmm. that area. Mm-hmm. So if substance P is released in those areas and you've got even just a sebum, pocket of sebum sitting there, and it's actually not being released into the skin as it should in healthy skin to protect it as a barrier, you can actually get inflammation even just by that. In, so sort of locally within the locally in that area. And of course then there is an association with um, propionibacterium acnes. Yep. Yep. A <laughs> Very L-Q- long name. Cutie bacterium. Yeah, bacterium, so the names change. <laughs> so Hard to so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, and, and the skin microbiome, again, is another uh, area oh, of discovery. Yeah, the
1: topical creams now. It, it has probiotics in yeah, so <laughs> it.
0: I've, I've yet to try it. but Me um, too,
1: yeah. I think that's yeah. a really interesting one. I mean, so you've touched on diet a little bit. I mean, I, you've obviously got a wealth of knowledge through the aesthetic side of things and, and also obviously with, with some of the other interventions. Let's say we move to stage two, I, I've mm. come back, I've spoken to my boss and I've been allocated three toilet breaks a day <laughs> yeah. with which so I can go and then drink eight glasses yeah. of water. Um, where do you go then? Do you, do, are there particular tests that you like to do? How, how do you maybe do further assessments if, if it's applicable?
0: So it depends on the patient because sometimes if they're very compliant with their strategies, then I don't necessarily test sure. um, but I will consider very f- often frequent deficiencies that I see in the general population and there are you know, things like vitamin D deficiencies and even zinc deficiency. These are really common and they often have an overlap with other fatty acid uh, deficiencies. So I often will do a physical examination. I, th- I think it's a, it sounds a little bit odd to do a physical examination <laughs> for nutrient depletions, but um, it's actually quite interesting if you look at the skin and you look at the fingernails, you'll actually see something called leukonychia, which is white spots on the fingernails. So I mean, sometimes it's hard because they have their nails painted, but then I check their toenails. (laughs) So (laughs) So I'm often looking at people's fingernails and looking for for white spots um, because they can indicate protein deficiency or low stomach acid or zinc deficiency. And if I see vertical or horizontal ridging, I I check for that and I ask again about their symptoms. Um, But I also... Some of the uh, skin conditions, like, for example, psoriasis, you'll actually see uh, the nails being affected as well. So you, it's important to look for other skin conditions that may be correlated. Um, so I get a lot out of that. Um, I also look at their tongue. And sometimes they think that I'm a Chinese medicine doctor because I'm looking at their tongue, but specifically I'm talking, I'm looking for a white coating of their tongue, because mm-hmm. uh, that can be an indicator of poor gut health. Sure. And um, sometimes they report having bad breath, so then uh, that could, to me, signify maybe they've got some reflux issues, or low stomach acid issues, um, or even potentially um, a type of bacteria that's actually very common in their guts and often associated with, um, and can be confused with acne, which is um, acne rosacea. Mm. So they have a very similar pattern, um, but the disease is slightly different. So I would look for those things. and um, So there's another uh, skin condition where you get this kind of chicken skin, plucked chicken skin type of bump that you can see on the outer side of your arms. It's called keratosis pilaris. And you and we often associate that with a vitamin A metabolism issue. Okay. So those are the common things that I would check for. Um. And the other one, uh, that I often will ask about, um, is a sense of taste and smell. Sure. Because that's uh, often perhaps uh, low in zinc, so mm-hmm. they're not really tasting their foods. So they're like wanting to salt their foods mm-hmm. and wanting to eat very uh, sweet foods mm-hmm. or salty foods or very. Uh, processed foods so some of these things can give me a clue and if they do look like they are having certain deficiencies then I would suggest that they do a nutrient test Um, because sometimes we can pick up low levels and if we actually replete them uh, their skin conditions can improve and but having said that I also uh, the the research also shows that uh, sometimes it's still worth trialing certain nutrients Uh, Even without a deficiency, because they can be therapeutic for a short period of time. So more here, I'm referring to vitamin A um, for a short period of time and a short course in some patients with acne, um, because that can really help to calm down the inflammation. So that's one thing that we have, but we have to be very careful of that because of liver function um, and also with pregnancy, Mm. with high doses.
1: Um, do you have any particular guidelines with vitamin A as well, like as far as how, how you're dosing that and maybe how long in, I mean, obviously, it is a case-by-case case as well, but um, and do you have any general guidelines that you follow when, when you're helping people with vitamin A?
0: Yeah, so with vitamin A, I'm very cautious because mm-hmm. if they're women, I ask them, you know, are you planning to be pregnant? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I exclude that, then I would usually make sure that their liver function is is good as sure. well and that's really important so uh, I tend to start probably I'm very very cautious so I tend to start around 10,000 units yep. but I can sometimes go up to 20 yep. and I would probably do that for a couple of weeks yep. and just see how they're responding because even sometimes you can get things like um, irritation of the skin mm. and peeling of the skin and mm-hmm. dryness and dry eyes and dry mm. mouth and mm. so those are some of the side effects that we really have to watch out for mm. And so if they're able to tolerate that and they're getting uh, good in uh, control of their inflammation, then the next step is to see like, what is the lowest dose that they can go to to continue to manage that.
1: That's fascinating. And I think one of the, one of the things I'm really hearing out of this is that a lot of the time, especially with skin, and once again you may be able to comment on this, is that it, may, it seems to me that it's gotten to the point where people are looking for incredibly sophisticated, you know ways of helping, <laughs> where really you've outlined here that nutrient deficiencies from a you know a poorly nutrient oriented diet, let's say, um, can actually play a huge role in how the body you know generally deals with a lot of these things. And interestingly, you know vitamin A has a big you know, role to play in the gut as well. Mm-hmm. So yes. there are you know what you're doing there is really you know looking at that skin axis and then the resources it requires in order to manage itself and this is really just doing the basics well Mm. um i mean how many of the crazier treatments have you seen i'm sure you must see quite a lot of crazy stuff but i mean are there any interests or maybe more innovative streams that you think may actually have some credence behind them i mean i know that we're starting to see lead levels you know, become quite a lot more important. I mean, maybe more so in Hong Kong mm. with people who are presenting with particular forms of atopic dermatitis or anything like that. Uh, but aside from that, are, are there particular streams that you're seeing, okay, well, maybe this isn't as crazy as it seemed initially and, you know, more just to get a sense of maybe it might go somewhere?
0: I think we're probably seeing a um, move towards... Therapies that modulate the immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not, I wouldn't say that they're crazy because they have been traditionally used in skin conditions. So, for example, like the autoimmune kinds of skin conditions like psoriasis. Um, You know, uh, we as doctors, we do use disease like very toxic drugs, pretty much cytotoxic drugs (laughs) in these conditions. So, you might say they're crazy, but have um, But because these autoimmune conditions don't just affect the skin, they mm. also affect joints and mm. they also affect nails. They also have, can affect internal organs. So mm. the severity warrants um, a, a certain level of treatment. But I think because we're now understanding that some of these conditions are autoimmune related, we've become much more interested in looking at the immune system as a whole. So there are definitely interesting therapies that um, are out there uh, and one of the interesting things that I'm seeing is the Use of peptides in okay. skin. Yeah, right. I mean, that's been around in the cosmetic industry for a long time, where you okay. have peptides in topical creams okay. and skincare products and yeah, then you okay. apply it. Yeah. Thinking, yeah, I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah okay. So, you see, yeah. so you've probably seen that in, in, in those areas. But that research has been around for quite some time. And we're now becoming more refined in the kinds of peptides that we have access to. So now they're injectable forms and some of these forms actually have specific uh, signaling uh, mechanisms. So if, if we go back to what peptides are, they're chains of amino acids, not more than 50 strings uh, altogether. So some are smaller, some are larger. And they are they actually in our bodies are natural, they, they occur naturally, They we have them, and they're signaling messengers. So they send messages to our cells to then replicate uh, parts of the DNA to then have an action. So these are signaling molecules. And in the uh, general health industry, so we're talking about um, disease treatment, uh, a lot of the research is being done in cancer therapy. But if we're talking about in, in skin, there's actually a lot of these peptides that are now injectable into the skin. Wow, okay. So one of the really interesting ones for anti-aging <laughs> is copper peptides. Yeah. So copper is something that is important for skin repair, sure. skin signaling. It's important uh, it's a really important molecule that helps the skin to repair itself. And so we see a lot of that uh, in skincare products, but also in the form of injectables. So other peptides also uh, there's so many of them, um, and they're all like big like they're all oligopeptides, different numbers, different <laughs> different ones have different one uh, signaling cascades. But some actually help to uh, reduce um, the overactivity of melanocytes, and the reason is because in Asia I see a lot of people we, we asian skin tend to have a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or pigment disorders mm-hmm. uh, just because our skin type is much more sensitive to uv radiation and as a result melanocytes are created to protect the skin mm-hmm. so and they tend to stay for a lot longer there are also congenital types of skin conditions called nevus of Ota, nevus of hori that are not uh, life-threatening but they are a cosmetic concern so there's a lot of research into these products that are um, blocking the production of melanocytes but also the melanocytes themselves have melanin that transfer pigment into the layers of the skin so there are specific signals using peptides that we can send to those pathways to block it
1: wow
0: so it's a it's a really interesting area of research that's
1: super interesting yeah and yeah it's, it seems to me that the one of the, the cool things about that is that we're still using what seems to me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes I am, <laughs> um, you know, that we're still using naturally occurring mm-hmm. substances in a sense to have a more, you know, I guess, specific you know, target Targets, you know, yeah. and i think this is this is where i'm actually loving a lot of the you know a lot of these directions where we're ga- gaining new understandings mm-hmm. and I, I really just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned just before and that you know even with peptides and and some of the more specific uh, kind of targeting that you're looking at you just really ticked a box there in saying that hey the immune system's now really really important and our knowledge and application of how we can help the immune system seems to be that okay well you've got an (laughs) autoimmune condition maybe the cream's not going to cut it Mm. you know maybe we need to modulate the immune system a little bit more and then kind of you know move ahead with actually i guess what i heard was the origin story of why Mm. that that's that's happening but are there any other areas where peptides have been i'm I'm super curious. Are there any other areas that you've heard that peptides can help people?
0: I think other areas, for example, are probably a lot of the research that's been done is uh, in athletes because the uh, kinds of peptides that uh, often, I think because athletes are also the types of people who need to recover Mm. really fast and because they're also stressing their bodies at a much higher rate, Mm then the search for things that will help improve recovery and also uh, shorten the time of injury has been quite uh, of interest. So there are, there are definitely peptides that help to improve joints, um, the connective tissue, ligaments, uh, fibroblasts so it can even cut down the time of the the athlete needing to recover so so there are different kinds of those peptides around and some are oral so not all peptides need injections but they're oral and um, I'll have to say that even for skin you can take certain peptides orally and that's actually been around for quite some time but the initial hypothesis was that uh, like collagen peptides, that whatever collagen you ingest actually goes to the skin, but actually doesn't because the collagen is a signaling molecule. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of confusion. People often ask, you know, is there any benefit in, uh, you know, orally consuming collagen? Does it go to your skin Well what you consume doesn't go to the skin, but it signals the skin to make better ones. <laughs> so that's really the short version of it. <laughs> and collagen is actually not just in the skin, it's in the gut, it's in our joints, in our connective tissue. So there are different types of collagen. Uh, so I think like that's probably um, an area of further research because we're much more able to pinpoint and refine and purify peptides and, and really target so specifically um the signals that we want to switch on
1: uh, this is fascinating look i i just want to say thank you so much for for joining us today i have one more question if mm-hmm. you don't mind let's say i'm new to using a uh, more i think you know dare i say broader approach to treat my skin mm-hmm. one i'm gonna step in and say see a practitioner who knows what they're talking about first okay that's that's mm-hmm. done. But if, if there was a way to maybe take some personal responsibility as either a patient or practitioner potentially, um, do you have any comments on where you would generally, you know, maybe a party message uh, for, you know, what you think might be best for someone to, to help with their skin?
0: I think the most important, well, I guess the, the most important thing is actually sleep.
1: Yeah. I love
0: it, yeah. Um, I find that whatever you do, whether it's nutrients or whether it's drug therapy, whether it's topical therapy, I've, in my more than 10 years of experience, the, the people who come to see me, whether it's for aesthetic treatments or skin condition treatments or acne scars or blemishes, um, I find that the ones who respond the fastest or maintain their skin health for the longest... Are the ones who actually uh, have adequate amounts of sleep and manage their stress well. Yeah, so I have patients who've seen me for ten years, and um, they have better skin condition now than they did ten years ago. And compared to their own peers, they. They, they have better skin because they have taken the holistic approach right. and looked at stress and sleep. And, um, you know, these things are free, really. <laughs> they don't cost anything. Just
1: it, it, But it's true, though, right? <laughs> and I think you know it really reinforces the message that you've offered throughout this episode, which is more that don't think the basics don't work. Mm. And, you know, I think the encouragement towards educating people from a practitioner point of view to our patients as well is to say, hey, we love sophistication, but make sure that you're offering people ideas about how sleep, for example, is, is a really big thing. Dr. Lorraine Law, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Philip. It's been absolutely a pleasure to, to join you today, and thank you for very much being a part of this. Now, if you'd like to get more information about your practice and how mm-hmm. to contact you, is there somewhere that you'd like people to go to, uh, to maybe book an appointment or get some more information about where you practice?
0: Sure. So I have a social media account, so you can follow me on doc underscore Lorena. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-A. Uh, or you can contact me at Life Clinic and you can Google search that, <laughs> lifeclinic.com.hk. No problem. So if you have any further questions, sure, you can email me and contact me through there.
1: That's great. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for and that And this was an absolute pleasure. More questions on the way.
0: <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> The INL podcast is brought to you by Integrated Nutraceuticals Limited, Hong Kong. If you want to know more about INL, natural medicine, or how to unlock the potential of our range, simply go to www.inl.asia and sign up for our newsletter, or simply browse through our education section to see what you can find. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for joining us. You can find us at anantawellbeing.com and follow us at Ananta Wellbeing on Facebook and Instagram. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review to help other like-minded people find us. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical condition. This podcast and its producers disclaim any responsibility for adverse effects that result from the use of this information. Opinions of guests are their own and are not endorsed by this podcast. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions. We do not make any representation or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Both producers and guests may have direct or indirect interest in the products and services mentioned. If you think you have a medical condition, please consult a licensed physician.